Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast and it's super to have you back on board. As much as I don't want to have to have this conversation today, I feel like we need to have this conversation today. For it's with Professor of Environmental Change Biology and FIRE guru, David Bowman, David Bowman happens to be a neighbor in my mother's street, actually, down here in Hobart, Tasmania, and he explores the relationship between fire, landscapes, and humans. A co-author of the textbook Fire on Earth, an introduction, he is now leading the pack globally in this very complex field. And the reason why I needed to have this conversation now is that Tasmania has just had the most unprecedented fire event. We had fire, huge fire, that took out most of Hobart back in 1967. We had a shocking fire event down here in 2016, which wiped out a lot of Gondwanan forest up in the uh, central plateau. And then we've had three years later, this enormous event, which has burnt hundreds of thousands of hectares of forest here in Tasmania, and also um, quite deep into our World Heritage Area. And we know that fire is fundamental to life, but what's becoming more certain, and as we discuss this on the podcast, is that fire events are happening more and more frequently. And rather than just a bushfire, we're starting to have fire crisis. And in Dave Bowman's words, this is what climate change looks like. So today's conversation, all I'm asking you is to hear it. There's a lot of incredible monologues from David Bowman, who is not just smart, but he lives with his driven purpose to share his knowledge with the community. So there's very little from me. There's a lot from Dave, and that's exactly how this conversation needed to be. The other take home that I want you to have at the end of this is that we're just asking you to live a conscious life, a life with the correct choices and choices which can help us to leave our planet for the younger generations. And we're also asking you to begin to think about living locally because local will mean less of an impact on our planet, which needs all the help it can get. So I love this conversation. It's relevant for the runners who love our landscapes. It's relevant for the people who love to visit and travel and explore and also to live in the planet in a comfortable, on the planet in a comfortable way. So it is an important conversation to have. I also just need to also make another mention to the Find Your Feet team, the Find Your Feet guys working in our retail store, a big outdoor adventure retail store selling all the equipment and apparel you need for all your outdoor needs. If you can support us, we'd love to support you. You get 20% off your first order, free shipping for anything over $100. And then because you become a member when you buy your first order, all our members get access to a 10% off every item going forward, although it does exclude the sale items. Second to that, I've been beavering behind the scenes, which is probably why the podcasts have been a bit few and far between on our 2020 trail running tours. We now have Find Your Feet trail running tours going to all corners of the globe. And in 2020, we're pretty excited to be delivering tours to Africa, Bulgaria, France, potentially even Albania, definitely Japan and here in Tasmania, including a 65 kilometer epic extreme overland track tour through the heart of Tasmania. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, head to findyourfeettours.com.au and we would love to have you here. 
We also have tours that aren't for the runners. So we've got some pretty cool trekking tours. Our Find Your Feet expeditions have tours going to Base Camp, Everest Base Camp, Stock Kangaroo and Mount Kinabalu this year. And in 2020, we'll be growing and expanding upon these alongside our partners, 360 Expeditions based in the UK. So if you need a bit of a holiday, you need some out time to put perspective on things that you're learning in this podcast. You want to meet me. You want to meet Graham, who we talk about a bit on this, on this podcast too. Love to have you. So head over to findyourfeettours.com.au or support us at our retail store, findyourfeet.com.au. And don't forget, there's also my website, www.hannyalston.com.au where you can find my trail running guidebook, my blog, my articles and lots of resources including a lot of training planners from the marathon right through to the 100 miler trail running events. Enough from me, let's get on with the podcast. This is a pretty cool one, I'm pretty excited. Here's David Bowman. We We were obviously having the huge fire events down here. Um, Queensland was under flood. America was in snowstorms. Um, Victoria was fight, like having fires. Well, I just learned recently there was a huge fire on the Larapinta Trail. Really? Did you know that? No, I didn't know. Yeah. I spent so, a lot of time in Larapinta region as yeah, well. Yeah, it was weird because somebody was asking me, you know, what, where's one of your you know, places, you know, you really like to go back to. And, and then I... I started talking about the West Max and then I just got this email and because it was happening during and from the photos and um, the the narrative it sounds horrendous yeah so is it is it unusual for Larapinta to get fire I mean it's such a dry area and you I just would expect there to be fire there but um, so the the fire ecology of Central Australia it's actually interesting um, there's the vegetation in Central Australia is strongly patterned by fire and it's related to the fact that the Australian deserts are unusual deserts because they're occasional deserts or the other way around they're occasionally not deserts that's why you can have pastoralism there because it depends on the incursions of the monsoon the monsoon can come down and mm-hmm. create these particularly during a La Nina and get these huge productive bursts of, uh, of grass growth and you could also get um, because it's transitional you can get um, rainfall from the from the mid latitudes going up into the desert so it's quite a variable climate but it does have a fire ecology and so there are species that are restricted to what we call fire refugia the spinifex which is a highly uh, fire adapted vegetation so there's a yeah. great story about central australian fire ecology and the problem is that uh, there's a species of invasive grass called buffalo grass which is um which often happens that these grass species disrupt fire ecologies and they've created more continuous fuel loads and the buffalo grass has just spread all through um all through out, you know central australia and it changes the fire ecology and it means that the fires can burn into areas that would have normally the uh, you know under nat- the natural vegetation patterns that would have burnt out on the boundaries okay but it actually burns through so from the report that i've um, read about this event which actually not many people know about certainly because we were so preoccupied by the tasmanian fires they're talking about 
um, a very large area. I can't remember the exact area, but a very large area, maybe 12,000 hectares, maybe more than that of the West Max. Wow. The Larapinta Trail has been adversely impacted. Uh, very large trees have been burnt down. So there was a, a terrific article I read of a woman who, um, you know, who's an ecologist actually, but she was really distressed by the fact that there were a lot of places that she'd taken her children when they were young, you know, and played, you know, in the riverbeds and all of that sort of stuff, um, which you do in, in Outback Australia and the camping and all that you can do from Alice family camping and everything and these places have been destroyed mm. and um, really classic example of what what uh, Glenn Albrick the environmental philosopher um, and people may have heard of the word because of Missy Higgins actually adopted <laughs> the the word he coined which is solastalgia solastalgia it's a really clever um, idea solastalgia is the pain the illness that goes with the loss of place. And he, Glenn Albrick, coined the word solastalgia and it's obviously got similarities to nostalgia. Um, and the reason he coined the word solastalgia is because he was watching what was happening to the communities in the Hunter, which were being dug up for the open cut coal mines. And so you had people who not, it's not a wilderness, it's not a particularly natural environment, but it's a, agricultural environment and people were losing their farms but also their sense of place yeah. and he worked with epidemiologists and psychologists and they noticed that there was actually uh, measurable uh, adverse health outcomes so psychosocial and also physical health was suffering as the sense of place was was being lost and I think um, the article I read from Central Australia about um, Fiona Walsh, who's an ecologist who, who wrote this article about this fire in the Lara Pinta, uh, the West Max, um, really had solastalgia all over it, even though she didn't know that it was solastalgia or she wasn't using the word sol solastalgia. Um, and exactly the same things happened in here in Tasmania where people... Um, you know, have got great memories of particular places, fond memories, so, you know, maybe thinking of doing a trip, or in some cases they were actually extracted from their trip by helicopters. Um, and this causes uh, a lot of psychological distress because the world they know um, and love, and, and, you know, it's sort of one of their um, star charts, I suppose, is, is being... Um, is being threatened or changed, and that creates, um, you know, great confusion and and introspection and and a whole. It's actually a lot of work. Um, I, I'm probably maybe people see me as hard-hearted about what's happened in the wilderness. In the 2016 event, I was actually reflecting of this. I was on um, Clark Island. Um, which is a small island to the south of um, uh, uh, Cape Barren Island um, with some Aboriginal friends from Arnhem Land, actually. It's an Aboriginal-owned island. It's a Tasmanian Aboriginal community called it Langatalanana. And uh, I had permission to go there with my Aboriginal friends. And um, 
So I was a bit cut off and it's a beautiful island. And then I started hearing reports about these fires and I got rung up by somebody, you know, and the environmentalists were beginning to start worrying about the fires. And I was like a bit confused by it because it was like, well, don't they know that this is the end of Gondwana? Don't they know this is what climate change is? And it, 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 it occurred to me then that I'd sort of internalised all of these things and had worked through a lot of that grief, um, you know, over years, because I'd seen places I've known get ripped up. Um, and I've been fixated on thinking about climate change since, since at least 1988, when I was first introduced to the idea, um, when I was visiting somebody in the US and they told me, you know, like you know, the scientific consensus, this is cli you know, this climate change is, is happening. So I was quite sensitised to, to climate change and I started thinking about it and I started noticing changes, not just climate change, but major environmental changes, particularly in uh, the top end of the Northern Territory. I was living the expansion of gamba grass, the small mammal population declines, um, cane toads, you know, all of these changes which are occurring and you, you live through them and then you travel and you see large landscapes being, you know, severely impacted. So it was really not surprising to me um, that that Gondwana was, or, you know, these Gondwanic remnants were under threat. And I was puzzled. It took me a while. I had to sort of recalibrate. It took me for a while to try to understand that people hadn't, weren't in the same mental space I was in. I found that a bit confusing for a while. So... And I completely hear you. And like just before we came on the podcast, you were saying how you're just getting inundated with people now popping their heads up and wanting to have this conversation with you because this fire event that's happened in Tasmania has really threatened our, our sense of um, nostalgia about places, our sense of like feeling a security in where we belong. Um, it's, I think it's really shaken the entire public especially in Tasmania. But I, I think you're right that I, I don't think people are caught up with where your brain is at. And I still don't think we're completely caught up. I still think people go, yeah, climate change, but you know, that's something that's happening where the sea levels are rising and I don't live next to the sea. Like I still think people have like a very simplistic view mm. of it, even though probably deep down they know they probably need to have a broader view. I still think it's really hard for us to predict. And part of that is because humans take humans aren't very good at seeing into the future. They sort of act on their immediate now and they can't, like if they can't see that threat to them right here, right now, it's very hard for humans to change their behaviors. So I think you're exactly right, but I'm kind of curious to know, how do you know that this is the end of Gondwana? Is, do you mean as in we're losing our um, tree species that can't recuperate from fire, like the pencil pines and like the kingbillies? Is that where, where you're coming from? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I made a decision in 2016, um, but just just to to finish the story about being on the island. So mm -hmm. I did a Sorry. radio yeah. interview from the island, and I was still really confused by the public debate. And I I was sort of like going, well, you know, of course, you know, Gondwana's under threat. You know, that that's of course. But to add to the dramatic tension to the whole thing, the smoke plumes that were coming out of these fires were so thick 
in mm. Bass Strait that we were trapped on the island. Oh, wow. We, the, the, the pilot couldn't land because it was just no visibility. And so you're in this sort of fog, mm. this fog of, you know, it's just acrid, you know, <laughs> but, but it was really sort of uh, really quite apocalyptic. And, you know, you're trapped on this island and mm. you, uh, with with a family from Arnhem Land and, you know, they don't really know what's going on. They, they just like, and occasionally every now and then the, the mountain range from, from Cape Barren Island would come in and out of focus and, you know, would the plane come, would it not come? So we were there for a couple of days and, and I think that really, um, you know, that had a, certainly a psychological effect on me, you know, I was directly affected by the 2016 fires mm. in, in lots of ways. And so I got back to um, I got back to Hobart. And I was in my house um, on my own, and the phone rang, and it was a, a journalist from the Guardian in London, and he's going, "What's going on in in Tasmania? You know, we've heard about this event in Tasmania. What's going on?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's, this is what climate change looks like." And I just said coined that phrase and I know I'm one of the early adopters of that phrase this is what mm. climate change looks like that's actually become uh, a very common phrase now to a lot of these events but then somebody said uh, a friend of mine at the University of Melbourne he said well you know what evidence do you have for that because traditionally I would always say you know the 09 fire and the Dunalley uh, uh, 013 fire we were always, and I, I remember, had a, a very robust interview. Um, there was a, an unusual fire event in October in the Blue Mountains, and I was on Late Line, which is sort of the grown-up political I program. That. I saw that interview. A yeah. And um, and it was like, you know, and, and Tony Abbott, I think, was the Prime Minister then, and it was like, you know, you can't say. But when that journalist rang up in 2016, I just said, look, this is climate change. You've got to understand this is what climate change looks like. This is what's going on. And uh, maybe that, but a whole lot of factors, you know, that, that fire was profiled in Nature, which is an important science magazine. But then the, the question is, well, how would you prove it's climate change? And so I prepared a seminar subsequently case studies, uh, several papers we've now written, where you can actually look at the constellation of factors and you can actually show that that fire event was sufficiently anomalous to qualify as climate change. But luckily for me um, is that some climatologists completely independent of me uh, at the University of Melbourne decided to do a formal attribution study uh, using a climate change model to look at the weather conditions, the, the, the climate setup, that which was the intense drought and the warmth that preceded that fire event. What they did is that you can run a climate change model and the attribution studies is that you can have the forcing of anthropogenic CO2 or you can turn that physical forcing off in the model and, and you would run the model as if it was pre-industrial. And then you can look at the difference in the outcome. So it's a it's a very standard climatological analysis to look at uh, to attribute an event um, to whether it's climate change. And the conclusion was that that event definitely had the signature of an anthropogenic climate change uh, cl uh, climatology. That it was warmer 
and drier than you would expect had it not been for the Industrial Revolution and the CO2 pollution in the atmosphere. And, I, and, and that's in addition to all of the other evidence that I had drawn together. And basically what I'd done is I'd made two decisions, a snap decision when the journalist rang me up, well, I'm just going to tell him what I think, uh, rather than dancing around on the point as I had done previously with these other events. Mm. Um, and the reason that I thought that is because I knew enough of the ecology and the setup of that system to say that event is significantly anomalous. And it was rather convenient that there were an independent line of evidence for this climate change attribution study that followed actually uh, and said, yes, it was, it was climate change. But fast forward to 2019, um, you know, I think we're all shocked by 2019 because, you know, three years later, we have a very a diff with some significant uh, specific differences, but a spookily similar event mm. uh, occurring. And you're going, whoa, this is really fitting the patterns that people are talking about uh, in the future. It's, it, it's fitting this, this constellation of factors that really is consistent with climate change. And that means that, uh, you know, 2019 is part of a trend. It's not an outlier. And yeah. that's the problem. So can we break it down just a little bit for anyone listening? So obviously just quick backtrack for them. So 2016, we had fires in the World Heritage Area of Tasmania. The significance of that was it hit in the Alpine areas where people thought they wouldn't burn. Um, we lost a lot of our sphagnum communities, uh, um, button grass, not button grass, um, pencil, pine. pencil pine communities and the, the bolster bogs. Yeah, the, the bolster bogs. heaths. Yeah. So it was like... These are regions that can't come back from fire. Once they're burnt, they're burnt forever. So that was the significance of that. And part of the inquiry that ended up going on to happen into that fire was that when they looked at like our response time to the fires, so the fires had been burning for a bit of time before they came in and started fighting the fire, and also that when they came in to fight the fire, they didn't know which assets to protect. Is that correct? So. There, there was a lot of a lot of um, conf confusions, I think, about uh, handling that fire. That that you see the, the thing. To be fair to the fire managers, what you confronted with these fire events, these climate change fire events, or we can use the fancy word Anthropocene. You know, the the period in Earth history now it's dominated by us humans. Um, so there's a view now that we've now crossed the threshold and that the Holocene, the, the, the interglacial period of 10,000 years, which allowed civilization to occur, stable climate, uh, stable climates are critical for agriculture. So that allowed civilization. And now because of industrialization at the sort of the, the, the peak of the, the human project, I suppose, of cities and then nation states and mm. industrialization and, you know, global trade and all the rest of it, we've changed the planet. Um, everywhere is being affected, not only, you know, by our local impacts and geoengineering and damming rivers and everything, but actually changing the atmosphere and the climate. And so that, those changes um, 
mean that a lot of our institutions, and we saw this in the 2019 event, <clears throat> even though that there was there were some very good inquiries in 2016, and there were improvements from 2016, but even in the 2019 event, it's clear that our institutions and our psychology, social sort of setup, our, our way of thinking, is not fit for purpose for an Anthropocene fire event. And by that, I mean that um, the scale of these things, simultaneous mm. events. What happened in 2016, there wasn't just a fire in the wilderness. There was also a fire in the Tarkine. There was a fire down on the Gordon River and mm. there were fires in the northeast. So exactly the same as happened in 2019. You have a fire service or a fire fighting system trying to prioritise across multiple settings, which really, really, you know, stressing a system. If it's just one fire, you could imagine mm. them following yeah. their protocol. Suddenly they've got many fires mm. and have to prioritise. Then you have people who may not even know where they are, you know, geographically, using firefighting techniques that in the case of the 2016 event, you know, is backburning an appropriate event to be using in alpine areas. And so that we've got these, uh, these uh, changes, I, I, I suppose. What happened in 2019 um, is that some of those uh, lessons from 2016 were learned. They used um, uh, irrigation systems to try mm. to protect, say, Lake Rona, which was, you know, a rear, and also some, uh, I understand, on and Mount Anne. Uh, Anne. You know, yeah. these are... You've got to also mention that they're not completely without consequences. If you're pumping water out of water bodies, that's affecting those water bodies. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, but so you even environmentalists have to understand that they're saying, oh, we want, you know, dropping fire retardant. Well, the reports on the fire, the, the surfactants, um, which are the more benign, uh, they're called, you know, firefighting um, chemicals, which are, um, there's two classes of firefighting chemicals. There's the foams and the gels that make the water do the job better. Mm -hmm. They make the water more efficient, which mm -hmm. has been dropped out of an aircraft. And then there's the um, chemicals, which are retardant chemicals. So they call that first class suppressants, the retardant chemicals are actually rich in basically agricultural fertilisers. So oh, they have wow. phosphorus and nitrogen. Okay. So you have environmentalists saying, why aren't they dropping retardants? And you're going, well, Southwest Tasmania is a infertile place. Yeah. And the uh, advice from the US with some of these chemicals is, is, you know, thou shall not use these chemicals within 300 metres of a waterway yeah. And they did a GIS analysis, and there's virtually nowhere in southwest Tasmania which is, yeah, yeah. which is, you know, yeah. more than 300 metres from a waterway. Yeah. So, environmentalists advocating for the use of these chemicals are not necessarily thinking through the consequences uh, for the terrestrial ecology. The fertiliser-based retardants are, are pretty. We don't know, but you would think prima facie they're fertilisers. Mm. So they're that's a concern on an oligotrophic or an infertile landscape. Yeah. And the surfactants are more of a problem for aquatic ecosystems yeah. because they affect fish and invertebrates because that, you know, their whole job is to affect 
you know, behave, the change the behaviour yeah, of water. water. Yeah. So if it gets on the body of, a, of an animal, it may cause some adverse outcomes. So we've got these, um, you know, paradoxes which are being uh, front-loaded into the system. And what pains me uh, and concerns me um, is that really to make sense of all of this stuff, you need to know a fair bit about fire ecology and firefighting and all the rest of it. When these events are happening, it's natural that people become very concerned and they might be making, you know, public calls. Why aren't they sending, you know, a jumbo jet here to, to bomb, you know, to bomb these fires? Um, well, you want to know something? Uh, in the, the 2017 Chilean fires, which I was invited to go and look at, and the, the, the Mediterranean part of Chile, central Chile, incredible fire event, mind-bending fire event. Uh, got some sort of similarities to the 2019 Tasmanian fire event, I might add, um, which we probably need to come to, and that is the bigger effect of the Chilean fire event um, is the same as here. It's really a forestry event. It's yeah. not really about the wilderness. The big story yeah. of the 2019 fires is forestry and people for reasons I can't understand, haven't got wrapped their head around that. Well, I wanted to ask <coughs> that question because actually my husband, Graham, this has been a huge concern of his for since I've known him, is that as we put forestry closer and closer into these wilderness areas, sometimes budding right up to these wilderness boundaries, you're putting these hugely flammable eucalyptus plantations as fingers that kind of effectively lead right into these wilderness regions. Is that is that what you mean by a forestry event? Well, well... I mean two things. Firstly, that um, the, the fire event, the primary impact was on the forests, particularly in the Huon Valley. Okay. And, I mean, yes, the Craycroft Valley got burnt and there were areas, um, you know, the Eastern Arthurs and Mount Bobs were threatened and so on. But the reality is they didn't get burnt. Now, the counter-argument is, oh, but they could have got burnt. But the counter-argument to that is, yeah, but Huonville could have got burned down. Mm. So we're now beginning to get into a very unpleasant place, which is, well, you know, do you ask a parent which is which is your favourite child? Um, do you ask a society that you know I want you to prioritise Mount Anne over the lives and and livelihoods of people in Huonville? I mean, that's just not a that's just that's that's not a socially acceptable question. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's anybody who would publicly say, you know, uh, you know, I, I would vote Mount Anne over, um, over the lives and property livelihoods of people in, in Hewenville. Um, that, that, that's not a, that would be not normal. You know, that would be antisocial. And so we're left with this, this, these dilemmas that come and go back to my point about having to really fast track understanding of fire ecology and fire management. Most people don't don't really think about this very much. Mm. So in the heat of the moment, they might be saying, you know, why aren't they sending the big jumbo jet down to bomb these fires? So that's exactly what happened in the Chilean fires. NGOs got together and, and of course, the companies want to use these things. So they sent this giant bomber down to Chile, you know, a modified jumbo jet, unbelievable. But the point is, these fire um, aircraft 
have two problems. First of all, they only have a particular purpose in a firefighting campaign. It's not like, it's, it's just the same with an Air Force, you know, that you can't win a war just by bombing. Mm. You, you actually have to have people on the ground doing stuff. And ideally it's coordinated. So there is a role for these aircraft, but if, but if you just think you can, you know, solve the problem, bomb the fire, put the fire, it's not how it works. The, basically what these aircraft are doing are either putting out hotspots or creating temporary chemical fire breaks, which people on the ground can use in some creative way, possibly backburning from or, or making a more uh, a, a solider, uh, more enduring fire break. Uh, but to change the behaviour or the flow of the fire across the landscape. So you've got people who are saying at the heat of the moment, why aren't people doing this, why aren't people doing that? And they don't actually necessarily know what's going on, you know. And, and so there's, from my point of view, a really big, and, but also by the same token, the authorities need to share information because it's got to be informed. We need the society is has a hunger for this stuff so we need better information flow because yeah. otherwise you're left you know we're not a, we're not a dictatorship we're not like china where the state owns and controls everything mm. we're a democracy and one of the powers of a democracy is that you can have you know you can have public debate you can have um but it's but from my point of view as an academic, it's got to be informed public debate. If it's just an emotional debate or a, uh, a blame-shifting debate or a bureaucratic um, blocking debate, you know, not wanting people to actually know the truth because it might make, you know, an agency or particular people in the agency look bad. They're all negative outcomes. What we need is, a, is information flow informed but from my point of view, and maybe I'm being idealistic, evidence-based, and then in the light of the evidence, people can step back and go, oh, I've learned something. Um, next time there's a fire, I'm not going to be calling for the, for the agencies to be you know, bombing it to an inch of its life with fire retardants because I've actually worked out that that's actually a special case. And in any case, I've also learned that you know, these chemicals and these aircraft are extremely expensive and the better way to achieve outcomes is to have planned burning in, in the landscape and to be having fuel management and having preparatory steps for, you know, to manage the inevitable next lightning-caused fires. Yeah, because <coughs> I, wanted, I wanted to say or to ask that because both 2016 and my understanding 2019, because it went straight over the top of us, that lightning storm or that thunderstorm, yeah. was that both of those fires started from dry lightning strikes. Yes. And I don't even think that all of us completely understand why are we seeing this now? What What is the signal? Why are we three years apart having dry lightning strikes where we're not getting the rain that we used to once get with a thunderstorm? So maybe we could start there and then I'd like to flow on to like, okay, so if 2016 happened, we learnt this much, 2019 happened, a, how long do we think we've got before the next of these sort of events? And how do we make change? Like, how do we yeah. make change? So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, the climatology of lightning has suddenly become uh, a really big topic. And I did a little bit of a literature search on uh, lightning in the Southern Hemisphere. And it turns out 
there's not a lot known about it. And so I'm collaborating with some, an American uh, meteorologist and uh, some folk at the Bureau of Meteorology, and I'm encouraging them to write a case study about the very specific synoptic setup that you get these storms. I thought that it was just because of the interaction of air masses with the mountains. And it's not that at all. It's actually a bigger global thing. It's the interaction of warm and cold air masses. It's actually related to the jet stream, which is, you know, the roaring 40s, which isn't just a perfect, you know, we have to talk about the roaring 40s, but it's actually got kinks and they're called the Rosby waves. And these Rosby waves, what we're seeing both in the northern and hummus, southern hemisphere, is that the jet stream, as you warm up the planet, um, the intensity of those, uh, or the, the, the latitudinal gradient of the, uh, of the jet stream changes because, so the jet stream starts having these kinks. That's why you get polar, you know, the polar vortices mm. where you get, you know, you know, literally, you know, Antarctic weather conditions In on top America. of uh, yeah, yeah. Chicago and so on. So you get these kinks that are occurring and that creates the setup for these lightning storms, these, which is you're getting this very unstable atmosphere, this mixing of warm and, 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 and cold air creates instability, which creates lightning. Now, for a variety of reasons, the dry lightning happens because you're getting rain coming out of the convection storms, but it goes through the lower atmosphere and it basically evaporates. Okay. So there, it is actually, a, there is a storm there and it is raining. It's just the rain doesn't hit the ground. Mm. Now, the, you know, these are, this is sort of outside my pay grade of why you're getting all of these events occurring. But what happens is that the lightning is going down onto an already pre-dried vegetation. So that's a, another thing that goes with these excursions of the jet stream is that you're getting dryness occurring in the landscape. So you get a lightning strike hitting the ground. The ground is already is receptive to starting a fire. Now, are there more lightning storms? That's a big question, big debate. Um, the, climatologi the climatologists are saying they don't think so, but we've got a shallow record. So that's a research question and, and we can use various techniques to retrospectively at least look at the synoptic setups for when you would expect dry lightning and you can look at the synoptic setups prospectively in climate change models to see whether there's going to be an increase. And part of the significance of those dry lightning events was that the peat soils got so dry that they almost they become almost impermeable to water once they reach a certain dryness. So the lightning hitting the ground is just it's super combustible, isn't it? Yeah, it's the it's the shrubs and so on are also so it gets to random of what the lightning strike falls on. So the available unpublished analysis that was done after two thousand and sixteen claims that the amount of lightning into the future may even decline under climate change uh, projected model, but the dryness is going to increase. So the net effect is you get more light, dry lightning fires. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether any of that is true, uh, but I'm, because there's another argument that with a warming atmosphere, you get more lightning. So we've got a, um, it's a research topic. It's, it's fun, you know. One of the great things about my job is a lot of this stuff's intellectually really interesting. It's yeah, fun. It's interesting. But practically, um, 
there's every reason to believe, regardless of your view on the climatology of lightning storms in the Southern Hemisphere, poorly known topic, there's every reason to believe, just for the simple fact of the drying trend, that there's going to be more um, more of these lightning fires. And it is shocking, uh, I think, in three years that we could see, um, you know, the realisation of that 2016, three years later, you know, barely the ink has dried on the inquiries. I'm still writing papers about about the 2016 event. And, you know, now I'm behind because I've got papers to write about the 2019 event. So it, it and... So that leads to another question of, you said, well, what are we going to do about it? Mm. So my view is, you know, I believe in, uh, in evidence, I believe in science, it's not that I don't believe in emotion, um, but I think that you have to channel emotion. So if you love these places, you sort of owe it to them to, from my point of view, my philosophy, this might not, might not be everybody's philosophy, well, it isn't everybody's philosophy, is that sometimes you have to approach these questions and put your emotion in the back seat and look at them, try to, I always say, you know, my definition of science is a rational discourse with mystery, you know, to me. But if you're really genuine about that and you're really genuine about going into understanding a mysterious phenomena, it might mean that you, well, it means by definition that the answers you may get might not be palatable, but they certainly might not be what you expect. So it's like an intellectual journey. A lot of people can't cope with that. They like to do uh, more normative science where they virtually are assured they're going to get the answer. And you can get the answer you want in science and still be totally reasonable. That's just by adjusting the frame of the question. So you just ask a very narrow or an almost uh, you know, a, a, a you know a trivial hypothesis or a trite hypothesis. You know, you ask a question and you go, oh, you know, yes, it's bigger. Well, you know, how terribly surprising! You could probably mm. work that out without doing the science, or it's smaller. But sometimes you can look at these questions, and it can take you places that you might not necessarily want to go, or you might not have thought that you would be taken, and that's uh, that's not for everybody. That's that's a big journey. So. You know, really, when we're looking at um, the the question of the future of the Gondwanic vegetation, for instance, um, you know, unless we get a grip on climate change, I'm already inhabiting, you know, a way more uh, heterodox reality than most people. So, Sorry, meaning? Well, it's not going to exist in 100 years. Okay. It's it's completely yeah. it's completely doomed. Yeah. Um, under, through fire, through drying, through the well, vegetation. climate change. Yeah. In fact, you can show a really simple analysis that we've done where you could just look at the elevation um, uh, categories available in Tasmania, and most of this stuff is already at the elevation limit. Mm. And because of the plateau, there's a large expanse of this vegetation. And if you go, well, you know, because of the environmental lapse rate, you know, another 100 metres, you can, you can, you know, for every 100 metres, it's a degree of cooling approximately. So, oh, well, you know, just go up 100 metres. But the problem is on top of the plateau, you've just got monadnocks, these little little things mm. like the Duquesne Range and everything. Yeah. So you go from a large area 
to a teeny area, and then above that teeny area, the highest peaks, Mount Ossa, there's nothing. Mm. And so it's got nowhere to go. So for the alpine vegetation, you're driving it upslope. In the end, it's just going to run out of places to go if you continue little. That's just the, the warming, let alone the drying trend. So what, you know, the most extreme case, I'm already imagining um, digging up pencil pines and getting a crane and putting them on a truck and taking them maybe in, and replanting them and in an irrigated cool valley somewhere um, and just having them like as a, you know, like, you know, like having a grove of these things which humans said, yeah, they're really cool things, they're living fossil, we want these things. Maybe, we, you know, in the future we're going to start thinking about Macquarie Island. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the, you know, the way things are going with the, you know, the break, breaking up or the, certainly the warning signs from Antarctica, you know, a completely crazy scenario is some of this stuff, Gondwanic vegetation, may exactly. actually go back to the mothership um, because... Because if, you know, this is the thing, you know, obviously it'd be terrible for civilization. but if, you know, the absolute worst case scenario and that we, you know, we blow the climate change breathalyzer and we go over four or five degrees of warming, the tropics will become uninhabitable, but Antarctica will be covered in vegetation. There's no question of when it was. The... Apparently grass is already appearing <clears throat> in parts of Antarctica already. I've got friends who work down there and they're just saying that you, we're just seeing changes that we sort of never really in thought we'd see. In the moss beds. Yeah, absolutely in the yeah. Antarctic finish. It stands to reason the dry valleys might, might not become so dry. So, you know, but these are very, very extreme, scary, crazy ideas. But I like thinking about those things as well. And then you go, right, let's think about this. You step back and you go, right, you, you could, you know, we could think about 100 years' time or we could think about now. We can choose to start mitigating and adapting or we can go for broke and just pretend that climate change isn't happening. We've got all of these choices. The, the interesting thing is nature does not care. Yeah. Nature could not care less about us. And nature will, you know, will life continue on this planet? Absolute 100%. If you can get extremotherms in, in, uh, in you know, the, 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 the hot pools in Yellowstone National Park, you've got bacteria, you know, depth in the regolith and, you know, all over the place. You've got stuff at the bottom of the ocean. Life will continue, but the mammal lineage might not. Mm. Um, and certainly human civilization won't. So we're, as a species, we're in a really interesting place. You know, we've got this sort of advanced warning. What are we going to do? Are we going to freak out or are we going to get our act together? And part of that is a philosophy, there's a lot of philosophy here. Being angry about climate change, the, the analogy I would use with respect to, you know, the fires in the wilderness, but, you know, we could look at any number of, you know, I mean, how sad is the, the destruction of the the Darling River, you know, I just mentioned the Larapita mm. Trail, the fact that the Kakadu wetlands are going to be under the Barrier Reef, the kelp beds, you know, it's just, it's this endless, that's just in Australia, signals of environmental stress. Being angry about it um, is a bit like, you know, a parent, parents in a, in a paediatric ward, you know, with a seriously sick child screaming at the doctors, you know, the doctors are doing what they can um, and, you know, obviously, they, you know, there will be new discoveries and we can make new therapies and new medicines and, and new things. That's, 
that's been the triumph of, of you know, using our intelligence and, um, you know, we can invent, uh, you know, ways of, co of coping with diseases that are thought to be incurable. And it's exactly the same we've got with climate change is that we do have these alternatives. And what I try to do is simultaneously think about, you know, long range sort of extreme events and then these short range events and and not get not get paralyzed with you know depression at the long range events going well they are they are versions of reality they're not certain we don't really know what will happen in 50 or 100 years time but you know it is chilling to think that now we're talking about children being born who mm. are going to be confronting these Definitely a different world to the world we're in. It's definitely going to be changing. Absolutely. It's, 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 Absolutely. It's in bed. But that's probably not a reason, you know, to, you know, like, like no, it's, it, it would be completely unfair to those children who are extant to say, oh, well, your life's toast. It's not necessarily. It's part of the exciting drama in, yeah. of, of how we're going to adapt, we're going to change. So then you look at the individual responses as you're saying, right, you know, these dry lightning storms are happening. You know, we love the wilderness. How are we going to adapt our mentality to, rather than being angry about it or sad about it, how do we use our intelligence and our skills and our resources to get the outcomes we want? And that's, that's a big public discussion, you know, and there are, um, and not give up on it, you know, like I think it's it's like I'm sort of, in two, in two minds, I suppose, about, um, you know, the, you know, the Gondwanic vegetation, you know, but there are these gestures of people trying to, to restore it or save it or protect it. And I think it's important that you don't disparage that because mm -hmm. even if those approaches don't work, there's so much we're going to learn along the way, Absolutely. which will be useful to conserve some of this stuff. And it may you know, it may be conserved by doing things that we wouldn't have thought we would be doing, Absolutely. like irrigation. Um, now, that could be, a lot of people would say, well, that's not a wilderness. And you say, yeah, well... well what, what's the alternative <laughs> well, for now? Well, you know, like know. around Lake Mackenzie, for yeah. instance, there is a, an impoundment, there is water there, so there is the opportunity to irrigate. Um, yeah. And then we could have solar pumps and we could, there are some beautiful stands of, of pencil pines that, uh, you know, not too far. You could run irrigation lines too and you could protect, but whether that's acceptable is, I don't know, but that, that's, that's the social. But uh, I, what you're saying, David, is that <laughs> we, even as individuals, like we can't just solely wait for governments and large organizations to be making the decisions that we know the climate needs, like the planet needs. Like there is also an individual level at which you have to operate and think about your actions. It all adds up, it all it all helps the climate and the planet. And um, my wake up call was going up into the 2016 affected areas around Lake Mackenzie. And I went in there with Rob Blakers and Dan Braun and my father as well, and um, saw firsthand the impact that those fires had had. And that was just my wake up call. And I remember walking along and I was, I was quietly sobbing to myself, feeling so demoralized by what I was seeing. And Rob came up next to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, 
honey, this isn't just a problem for our children, it's a problem for us. And, um, and that just made me even more upset. And then he said, but what you have to remember is that there are all these amazing people out there doing amazing things to try and help. And eventually we have to hope that it'll, that'll all come together. And I went home and I was like, what can I do as an individual? I mean, I'm known, I'm known for my running. I've got skills in medicine and all sorts of things and nothing to do with environment and environmental management. And I thought, no, there are two things I can do. There's one, I can change the way I live my lifestyle and my footprint that I'm having on the planet. And the second thing I can do is I can share the voices of people like yourself and share as well the small changes that I'm making as an individual and hope that other people cotton on. And that's effectively what we're doing. And I just, I guess I bring that up because what I've just seen in the, in the media is some teenage girls in Europe who are starting these huge, huge demonstrations against climate change or for, clim for the climate, for the, for the planet. And it's teenage girls stepping up and going, if the governments aren't gonna start taking action, we're gonna start crying out for action. And so do you feel where you sit now that we are starting to go past those early adopter movements and we're starting to see the mass movement starting to come to shape? Do you think we are beginning to change and change fast enough or do you think we've got a hell of a long way to go? Um, I think we've, we've got a lot to learn and it's, it's a complicated web of relationships. Um, so, you know, often, I often think about this, but, you know, what's in terms of lifestyles, you know, imagine if, you, um, if you're so depressed that, you know, you end up doing yourself harm, you know, like that's also a negative outcome. So people, you know, people have to be also managing themselves and, thinking and, and their families, you know, you can't just sort of set up a, a dynamic where it's so horrendous that daily life is, is horrible. We, we actually have to, in a transition period, we have to be looking after ourselves and maybe that doesn't necessarily equate to the immediate, uh, what, I, what I always like, you know, I was playing around with a couple of years ago was, well, what do the Guyans do? And, you know, who are the Guyans? And the Guyans are the people who are post, the post-industrial society that's got through all of these issues. And, you know, there's no longer a threat of climate change and they've got on top of resource allocation and they've got on top of nuclear weapons and they've got on top of, of population expansion and they've got on top of the biodiversity crisis. So, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not often acquainted with the idea of utopianism like that and to say, well, what would a utopian, in other words, maybe at this very low point, and there's a lot of people suffering this terrible stress, um, we need to also be thinking about utopian, like, oh, but that's idealistic and unrealistic. So what? It actually may be really important for people's mental health to have a sense that there can be humans can get their act together and, and live in, in a good world. Yeah, and then you go, well, how are we going to get from the mess we're in to that utopian stage? And it's going to be non-linear. It's not going to be just, you know, a five-step program where we're going to get there. 
and we are all hypocrites and we are all contrary and we use resources which are imperfect. But as long as the trend is going in the right direction and that we're having our eye on the main game, I think that's better. So, you know, you could, you know, become, well, you could get, you could get so anxious about resource consumption and about, you know, your, your footprint and everything that you, you end up probably persuading yourself the best thing to do is not to be alive. Um, and that's, that's a really, that's not a productive mentality. So you've got to be balancing those concerns with, with also ensuring that, you know, you're having a, um, a sustainable, in a sense, not only a sustainable ecologically, but also sustainable psychologically, yeah. because we're on a broader trajectory. And I think part of the way of helping with that is to think, well, we're going to humans, not necessarily we humans, but, you know, it, unless you, you believe that we're all going to get in a spaceship and go to another planet and do it all over again there, humans are going to end up living in a sustainable, uh, in a sustainable way because and reconciling yeah. the fact that they're part of a biosphere and that other species have got rights to exist and that we've got to share resources with other species and got to share resources with each other. Obviously, we're wildly out of whack at the moment, but we are going to, by definition, we're either going to go extinct or we're going to get there. So I, I always like to think about, well, what do the Gaians do and how do they live their life? And then you'd think, well, that's what the Gaians do you know, and I'm not certain what the guys do, but you could start thinking about what they do and then you could say, oh, well, maybe I could start having some of their attributes mm. now. You know, I could start adopting some of those things. So it's probably almost certain, for instance, that Guyans eat less meat than we do. So, you know, it's probably, you know, something... And, and yeah, it might be a gesture and it's not changing the world, but it's a good psychological gesture. Well, that's, that's what I came to eventually. Like I went through my, like I think you talked about it, you went through a phase of grief and yeah. you, you've kind of almost dealt with that and you're coming out the other end and you're like, okay, proactivity, what am I going to do? And I feel like that was kind of where I got to as well. It's like as long as I can turn around and say to my children or, you know, my brother's children down the track, like, I knew what needed to be done and I did my best <laughs> and I but in a sustainable way and a way that was true to what I could do then that's all I can ask of myself and I guess that's all I ask of people to be honest listening to you you're, you know so much of what you've talked about is stuff that needs needs to happen like we need to do the research we need to understand what's happening yeah. we need to understand what we can learn from what has happened we need to think about our what our utopian view is going forward and we need to begin to think about how we can get there that's effectively what the discussion's been and and that's what you're saying is like we just need people to to sit up and go i can help there i can do a little bit here i can change this here yeah that, that's right and not hold unrealistic um i travel a lot and that concerns me, um, you know, have an enormous carbon footprint. But by the same token, I've learned an amazing amount mm. and I'm using that information um, and I'm, you know, involved in a, you know, a global project, I suppose, with fire. Now, is that a reasonable, would I be better off just saying, no, I don't travel anymore and I just stay here and cut and cut off all of that, that all of those um, 
all of those connections and networks? I don't know. You know, maybe maybe if you were totally hard-headed about it, you'd be say you shouldn't travel so much. Um, I've made the decision, the choice, I suppose, that on balance, for what I'm trying to achieve, it's worth doing it. And you could you could you could argue the exact opposite. But by the same token, that if um, if somebody said, you know, by the way, all international travel has, has stopped, um, to a certain degree, it would be a relief. Yeah. But <laughs> if, know, so the if, difference there, David, is you're, con- you're making decisions consciously. You're not just jumping on an aeroplane because it's a bit of fun and you get to go off here. Like you're thinking, like it might be fun and you might still be going there, but there's a conscious decision around is this the right decision to be making? And it's that living by a consciousness that is really... Yeah, but, I, I, you know, I, I think um, I, I wouldn't hold myself up as the paragon of virtue, you know, that we... we but what I would argue is that it's a... It, to get from where we are now to the future we're going to end up being, and it'll be a global shared future, it's a... It's a, it's a it's a jagged path and things like, so, so these, these are really big questions. It's like national parks. Um, you know, some people think, well, national parks should really be off limits and it just should be for nature. But then the alternative argument, you know, say the huts argument, you know, which is a big, a big argument. Then just say, but hey guys, you need, you know, in, in this society now, you need a constituency for national parks. If you don't have a constituency, political constituency, it's really easy for national parks just to be to be devalued or... Unprotected. Re- yeah, unprotected, yeah. unfunded. You know, you need that constituency. And the problem is the constituency is going to be got from people having experiences in national parks. Absolutely. And then if you want people to have an experience in a national park, then some people just aren't up to doing doing it, you know, the hard way. They're going to want to have huts. And so my honest opinion, say the overland track is, you know, and the, and the guided trips, the overland trip, well, a lot of the guided trips, they might not be perfect for a wilderness purist, but in terms of building a constituency, and I've been down... The Franklin, for instance, on commercial trips a friend of mine runs. And you can see the people who come out of those trips yeah. are going to, who are often, you know, quite influential people, are going to go back and just say that, you know, it's so fantastic that we saved the Franklin. That's such an awesome, incredible yeah. place. And it's got, you know, these incredible values and, you know, life-changing event. Um, you could say, oh, well, we should ban all commercial activity in national parks because that's antithetical to wilderness and say, well, you could do that, but you might wind up with no wilderness. Well, that's so these are these compromises that we ha- have to have. Absolutely. And you asked at the start, like, oh, how, how's your business going? And our business has two arms at, you know, on a surface level, I'm not proud of like one is a retail store. So we're promoting consumerism and two is a tourism business. And we take people, either people fly all the way here to come and experience Tassie or we fly all the way to Europe or wherever to go and experience another place. But I've come to the realization that both are really important. The retail store is, it's basically facilitating people getting into wild places and seeing them because when people see them, which is what we see on our tours, people, when they see these places, they want to change. They want to sit up and become the custodians of them as well. So I'll I'll tell you something very bizarre. 
Um, and, and this is where, you know, the the the, the muddied and the, the muddied messy nature of the jagged trajectory of of history. And you can draw your own conclusions, but um, and and they're very disturbing conclusions to 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 a degree. Um, I'm still thinking about it, but uh, a few years ago I was invited to Bilavisa uh, National Park, which is one of the last, what is the last primeval forest in in Europe, and it's on the border of Belarus and Poland, and one of the big things about that national park is that it's the last remaining stronghold of the European bison, which is really the last megafauna of Europe. Um, and it's an awesome thing to see these animals and I've seen them and it's, it's the whole thing is just awesome and incredible. Now, why do they exist? That's where it gets messy. Uh, because the, when the Russians occupied Poland, the Tsar of Russia want, had a, actually had a hunting lodge it, it, on the outskirts of this thing. And then when the Germans invaded Poland, they, uh, I think it was Goring, one of the senior Nazis, wanted this place because he liked these big animals. Now, the fact of the matter is, those animals exist because of some pretty horrible history. And we have to think about that, that the stuff that's going to survive through the current moment we're in is going to be because of, not necessarily accidents of history, but because of because of human decision making and which goes along with politics. Mm. And so, you know, had those sits, had that animal not been valued as a hunting animal, it wouldn't exist, it would be extinct. It exists because it was valued by very powerful people as a hunting animal, it exists. So we have to understand that the choices society make is going to determine, you know, we, we, you know, the things that we're going to save are going to be related to human values. And that's just a fact of the matter. And, and obviously that, that's a totally extreme example. Um, and, I'm, you know, obviously a, a chilling extreme example, um, but an interesting extreme example. And I would say that the sorts of choices we need a constituency for nature and wild land. And if we just think, you know, it's self-evident that people are going to want to conserve a wilderness. It's self-evident that, that, you know, the government must do it. It's not self-evident. And that's where ecotourism comes in, that, that there has to be um, a halo of uses. And one of the things that I think Tasmania is still grappling with is that um, and we need to very quickly break out of this dynamic, is that the environment movement, which saved the Franklin, did an amazing thing for Tasmania. It's, you know, when, when history is written, it will look back, these incredibly motivated, smart people, um, you know, some of the brightest people of their generation came to Tasmania to be involved in a movement. Um, you know, extraordinary humans, uh, lots of them, high concentration of them, an amazing uh, constellation of events. Now they changed Tasmania globally. They've given it, you know, if you will, 
brand Tasmania. They've given Tasmania this identity. They've created a world heritage area. But the question we have to deal with now is, well, by what values, particularly in a rapidly changing climate, do we manage that world heritage area? Do we, do we still adhere to a strict wilderness paradigm or do we go, well, you know, the fact is that there are people coming to Tasmania and they're valuing this. What, what experience do we allow them to have? And I think, um, you know, and that gets right to these, you know, thorny questions of huts on the South Coast track. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's just completely inappropriate. But then you go, well, yeah, but the South Coast track is now being loved to death. And if you have a reason around that to maintain and to manage that track, you know, and maybe put a premium on it, where you start regulating it and you don't just have bogs everywhere and, you know, eroded, you know, scars on the landscape, but maybe you're going to have to compromise and some people just can't cope with that. They say, well, that's just not part of my, that's not my remit. I can't do that. But for those compromises, uh, we're seeing that's like writ little, those compromises are going to be writ large with climate change of how do we manage a wilderness where is a rapidly changing climate and the tensions in wilderness management are becoming apparent. Um, you know, like, you know, on one level, these fires are completely natural and because they're lightning course, so there's no real person to blame. It wasn't an arsonist, it was just lightning. So how do you, how do you manage that? Some people are saying, oh, well, we need aircraft, we need this, this, that, but hang on, hang on. Isn't that antithetical to your wilderness paradigm? To have all of these these huge industrial interventions, possibly using chemicals and everything. And by the way, if that's acceptable, why isn't it acceptable to have a hut? It's like you're already bending here because, you know, you could be a strict wilderness person. So, no, it's nature. We've just got to deal with whatever nature throws at it. That's just a wild area and nature just, and they're saying, no, that's climate change. It needs to be, there needs to be an intervention. We need to do this. Well, by the same token, if there's that degree of relativism, then they and you, you've got a model like the uh, overland track where you can see you're building a constituency, changing people's understanding, appreciation of an environment because we do need a constituency in a democracy. We need people to value these places. Um, and then, it, you know, it gets closer closer to home, you know. Um, I'm touching all of the hot button issues, but the chairlift on the mountain, you know, it's exactly the same thing. You know, well, what, what do we want for this mountain and how are we going to use it and how are we going to allow people to experience it? They're necessary political and social debates and, you know, so with the, the case of the mountain, you know, I've always looked at it and I thought, well, you can have a chairlift on the mountain as long as everybody knows the chairlift could get burnt down. You know, like that, that would be my number one first thing in my thought is, you know, major inf industrial infrastructure on mountain, start thinking about fire, you know, like how are you going to manage that? Because the fires are going to come. But by the same token, if the fires are going to come on Mount Wellington, how are we going to actually if not fortify, adapt Hobart so it doesn't get burnt down. And a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, we don't want to change. We just want, we just want to be able to live in the fern tree and we just want, that's what we want to be able to do. Just, you know, wake up in the morning and the mist and the fog and the, 
and the in the soft rain and you know it's like, yeah but that's all changing now you know you're, you're actually living in a in a very combustible landscape how are you going to adapt to that so these really big social issues which i can't you know i might have opinions about but my opinions are just one of many what i'm specifically trying to do in in relation to fire and i'm not wanting to get involved in wilderness management you know the broader issues of wilderness management certainly the question of fire management in toto is that don't segment the wilderness fire management from the forestry fire management and the wildland uh, urban interface forestry management because they're all a bunch the fire doesn't know about these dichotomies it the fire didn't know that it was leaving the world heritage area and burning into forestry mm. ground it it the fire doesn't know the fire doesn't have an intelligence it just burns across the landscape like water fly, flowing across a watershed so what we need is a lot more discussion and debate and and a lot more uh, introspection and and maybe it's not possible in tasmania i don't know but I think probably the opening up of what I would hope is shared concerns so there can be compromise because we say, well, we didn't like what happened and small businesses were affected and forestry is affected, the wilderness is affected and human health was affected from the smoke. All these things which were bad and it had such a big bill, we don't know the bill, but there'll be such a big bill to fight this fire. We don't want more of these things. So how do we think this through what are we willing to compromise about? What are we willing to change? And if it's all just, you know, daggers drawn and no change, then you're not understanding the Anthropocene, you're not understanding climate change, that by definition, the whole world is changing. And so your value package and what you're willing to tolerate has to change. Because if you're not willing to change those things, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're, you're you're a bit like the Gondwanic vegetation. You may be, um, you, you, you may be just running out of, of opportunities as the environment. Now, there's very, very disturbing things to say. Um, so what I've done is I've set up a fire centre uh, at the university. And what I'm wanting with that fire centre is to really try to capture the complexities of these issues from the law philosophy, psychology, ecology, epidemiology, archaeology, mm. anthropology, the full catastrophe, to think about these issues and to create a safe space where we can have reasoned discussion. And through that reasoned discussion, I'm hoping we can break down entrenched views on all sides um, and find these really creative and innovative, interesting solutions, which may be, you know, when we look back in the history of ideas, I'll be dead, but when we look back in the history of ideas, wouldn't it be cool to see from these ideas a direct descendants to the, to the Gaians? Mm -hmm. So they go, oh, yeah, you know, and they might have a different way of thinking about, they might go back to thinking about academics as lawmen. You know, they were the, they were the like the lawmen, like Aboriginal, they were the, the people who were thinking about country. You know, they were thinking about country and they gave us this tradition of why we do this. 
I mean, wouldn't that be an ama- I mean, it's idealistic, but wouldn't that be amazing if we were taking syncretically these ideas, building these ideas that may be resulting into a new culture? Because what I believe is in the end, the cultures, we're going to go back to localism. And so we're going through a global moment at the moment. The moment is global, but because of the changes uh, in the earth system, but also in the way the economies are going to work, we're already seeing that with the rise of nationalism and all the rest of it. We will go back in the end to what humans are good at, which will be localism and local diversity, local solutions, because that's the way we're going to adapt will be at the local scale. It's not going to be at the global scale. We'll go back to a lot more regional diversity. There has to be for the solutions we're going to find. That's not to mean that we have to repudiate globalism. There's actually, there's a, at the moment, we're in these ex, incredibly exciting exchanges. Um, you know, I went to Galicia, northern Spain, and, you know, they're dealing, looks like, looks like you know, the east coast of Tasmania. They've got feral blue gums. So we, we will have, um, you know, exchanges people who've got, you know, from the Chilean fires, there's all of these things which are going on. But in the end, those solutions that will work for Galicia will be different to the solutions that work for Tasmania, which will be different for the solutions that work for New Zealand. But at the moment, we need to exchange information. Mm. The exchanging of information as we're setting ourselves up, preparing for these really new, innovative adaptive responses. So I, I'm, I'm sort of seeing we're in a, in a flux at the moment, and then we're going to, at some point, it's going to be really quick that we're going to suddenly flip back into local solutions and, and we're going to be, either we're just going to be obliterated by these forces, but I'm more optimistic than that, we'll adapt and stabilise, and then we'll go back. People won't travel globally so much, but when they do, they're going to be struck by how different everything is mm. everywhere. We're going to go back to that. that... I love that. <laughs> like, I love that, um, that optimism that you put in it, that like, we can live locally and what you're doing here around your fire centre here can become like um, something that can be admired by other sort of communities around the globe and it can become almost like a role model and then I think if we break that down and what you're doing there's another level there where people who live with conscience and live conscientiously become role models as well not just in their community but around the globe and that is where the change can happen yeah and it's the legacy that I guess what I'm thinking is it's the philosophical uh, intellectual and the practice legacies which which we're really in an amazing moment, revolutionary moment in human history. And just as, you know, there's been these other revolutionary moments where we're still digesting some of the big ideas that people came up with, you know, they resonate through time and, you know, we're still thinking about them. I think that what we're coming up with at the moment, there's going to be these legacies which will uh, feed through and that the opportunity with the internet and international travel what I see is the opportunity for confederations, not for federations. So it's mm. more distributed networks, exchanging of information that, you know, in a way, 
um, you know, global empires and you know, and and global, you know, uh, agreements and all the rest of it. Yes, there's a, a you know, they're, they're obviously these things have got to play out. But the reality is, for most people, you know, what's going to make Hobart safe now immediately is what Hobartians do. Not we're not waiting for. The, the Paris Agreement to kick in and CO2 levels to drop. It's actually, we've just got to start. And that's why local government's becoming so important because all over the world, people are realising their local communities, local government, the decisions people are making locally, you know, there's this fantastic opportunity for adaptation and, and you know, collective responses, you know, people just saying, oh, well, I'm going to get batteries, I'm going to have solar panels, I'm going to do this, because I've got the capacity to do that. That can start driving, um, you know, local economies, changing the way people see uh, see their how their their local communities work. So I'm actually, um, I tried. I, I mean, I don't worry if I want to. I can really fixate on do the pessimistic thing. Let's not go there. <laughs> I, I'm really happy that we're finishing with a really optimistic note because that's. That's in my heart where I've got to, too. Yeah, that's yeah, That's exactly right. right. And that's exactly kind of what I was hoping. I mean, I can't put words in your mouth, but I was hoping to have that kind of conversation today because I think after all the sadness and the, and the challenges that we've been through, particularly locally here in Tasmania, we kind of need to have some optimism and some hope and a feeling like we are empowered to move forwards. Yeah, and, and I mean, to be perfectly honest, the thing that the younger generation needs is the worst thing is to dis disenfranchise them from their sense of their role in history, their mm -hmm. place in history. They, you know, they have to do new stuff. They have to challenge the the people who who maybe did some good things in in the prime of their life, maybe did some ordinary things. You know, thinking of the baby boomers here. You know, they have to challenge um, people like me with new ideas. That's that's how society works. And I think there's this rather than, you know, it's all gloomy saying, no, we've got to really start behaving in these new ways. And as you mentioned, the 16 year old, uh, in, uh, obliquely Greta Thunberg, you know, she's just an amazing human being. If you believe in religion, you know, she's definitely an angel sent to warn us of climate change. And, you know, one of her aphorisms is, you know, to deal with the climate crisis, the first thing you have to do is recognise it as a crisis. And it's sort of like, it's like so self-evident, you know, it takes, it, it takes a 16-year-old to say that publicly. <laughs> Once you do that, there's an opportunity for the younger generation, rather than getting stuck, saying, right, you know, we're at the prime of our lives, let's start doing innovative things, let's see these changes where we're going to prepare for the future rather than distracting yourself about you know how can i fit in as many good experiences before the end of the world it's how can i actually start changing the world to make it so there's a sense that we're going to get to this this you know utopian what's wrong with, you know of course it will never be realized but what's wrong with having a utopian view that we're working towards some greater good and, and that all of our actions hopefully can be ratcheting towards that greater good. That's what I'd like to think we're doing. Dave, that is gold. Thank you 
so yeah. much. Yeah. Like, thank you so much and for empowering us and for helping us to see like our roles in it. Um, because I really feel like today has clarified so much for me and really empowered me. Like I really genuinely mean that. So thank you. Um, yeah, and thanks for doing what you do. It's really yeah. like, yeah, it's really inspiring. Oh, well, I've, I've got no choice. I'm going to do what I'm going to do regardless. <laughs> anyway, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much.